Welcome to another episode of Fight the Burnout. As always, we have another special guest uh, who is a uh, current law enforcement officer uh, in the DFW uh, area. He also runs a podcast. He talks about stoicism. Uh, and so it's going to be another great conversation. We had another gentleman who's current law enforcement in Florida who talked about stoicism, and it was a great conversation. Uh, we, today we have, uh, we have Bryce Lee uh, in the house. I have spoken to Bryce before on the phone when I was in the United States, and it was a great conversation. So I'm privileged and honored to have you here, Bryce. Uh, before we get started, though, I always like to preface this episode with take one thing away. You know, we are in an information overload world these days, and we're giving you more information. We're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about PTSD. We're going to talk about tools and strategies to overcome it. But I don't want you to try and implement everything because then you'll implement nothing. And so I want you to take one thing away, write down everything, but then decide on that one thing you're going to start to implement for the next 30 days. If you can do that and then come back and, you know, add another one in and add another one in by the end of the year, you're going to be tenfold to where you are now. Don't try and take all the information in and action on all of it, just action on one thing. So without further ado, Bryce, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're at, what's going on, how you got to where you are now, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice too. I think I'm going to start doing that when I listen to podcasts. <laughs> it is, just get overwhelmed Perfect. with everything you hear. Uh, is, so I'm Bryce there's, um, there's so much information out there. Oh, there is. Uh, I'm Bryce. Uh, I'm a proud husband and dad. Um, I always like to start out with that. Uh, I've been serving as a law enforcement officer for the past nine years. Uh, I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area here in North Texas. Um uh, Three years I spent as a patrol corporal, I've uh, been a trainer, uh, been an honor guard member as long as I've been in law enforcement. That's always been something that that really fulfills me. And then also I retired last September from the U.S. Air Force after 20 years. So got that background working on aircraft uh, as well. Uh, like I said, I'm a practicing stoic. Uh, I learned about stoicism while I was going through uh, my little transition phase with PTSD and dealing with some stuff from the military. Uh, really just changed my life, made a huge difference. So I started a podcast called The Stoic Sentinel, where I'm applying stoic philosophy to law enforcement, trying to help others with the information and the framework of that philosophy that helped me so much. Um, I'm a big advocate for uh, mental health for first officers. So I love what you're doing with the burnout, uh, struggled with PTSD myself and I was able to get help and use some of the things that I try to share to help me get through it. And honestly, the last few years, especially with COVID and everything, I'm not sure what I would have done without it. So it's been a huge help to me. Um, I've been with two different agencies and it's no big secret now. I'm actually actively working towards going to my third uh, for reasons that I'll get into later, mm. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, that's that's me. Uh, big in jujitsu. That's really what the catalyst that started the whole self-improvement of myself and led to everything else that I'm doing now. And I'm, I know I'm not the first person that's probably told you that and wow. probably not the last either. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. It's almost it's almost jiu-jitsu these days especially with law enforcement's almost cultish yeah. <laughs> you know? if you're not doing it you're kind of on the outside <laughs> yeah exactly exactly they'll, they'll tell you about it it's kind of like once a cop goes through mental health stuff and finds personal development it's like <laughs> yeah you got to find that stuff guys <laughs> um okay so uh obviously you were air force before law enforcement yeah you take it how long have you been in law enforcement now nine years so I got, I got out of active duty after 12 years and went reserves. And while I was in the reserves is when I started my law enforcement career. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I know you, you said you went through PTSD. Did you uh, like, where'd the PTSD come from? Where did you, you know, obviously you've worked through it. So I'm sure that you're aware of yeah. where it comes from, where it stems from, oh, yeah. what, you know, the, whether it was a cumulative or an acute incident. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2016, I was at Bagram Air Base and I'm an F-16 mechanic. So we're out, you know, out in the open air in the weather on the flight line and uh, the ISIS elements and the Taliban while we were there 
uh, we're actively trying to shoot mortars or rockets and, you know, disable some of the jets or harm us. So we were constantly having incoming uh, indirect fire. We had the big machine guns that would shoot stuff down. Sometimes they'd miss stuff. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, but I had one incident where some friends of mine, we have a, we have a part of the flight line called uh, into runway. That's where the jets, the last place to get checked before they take off. They're the first place they come back, get everything pinned up, the weapons safe. Um, so we'll typically go out as mechanics. Well, the crew chiefs will go out about an hour prior to the jets coming down. Uh, well, my group of friends, you know, one of them had to hit the head before they went out there. So he's like, Hey, everybody just chill out. We'll get something to eat. We'll go out there in a minute. Well, they were hanging out instead of being where they normally would be uh, mortar hit their toolbox. So if they had gone out on time, they would have been there and would have all been killed. Um, so an event that I wasn't even present for and didn't even actually happen, um, but it stuck with me. So that's, I had recurring nightmares that they had been there very graphic. I would wake up multiple times a night. I'd have to clear my whole house just to make myself feel better enough to try to go back to sleep. Um, if I heard an air raid siren or uh, even the here we test the tornado sirens every Wednesday, every city pretty much tests their tornado sirens. I would hear that and kind of freeze up and kind of have a panic attack uh, just because I was reliving those those attacks. Um, just kind of thought that was just the way it was. And that's just, you know, I was never outside the wire. You know, I never went out and actively fought anybody. So to me, I didn't have. I didn't have PTSD. I didn't deserve to have PTSD. Um, and it was, it wasn't until I got out and was actually trying to do my disability for the air force that, uh, the group that I hired to help me do all that was like, well, have you done your mental health assessment? I was like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. They're like, really? You went to war, you've been in the military for 20 years and you've been a cop for nine years or at that point, like eight years or seven years. And there's nothing wrong. I was like, no. Nah. So they sent me the list of, um, uh, symptoms for PTSD and I was reading them in bed and my wife was like, yep, yep, yep. So she was just, isn't it funny how they, isn't it funny how they can sit there? Like I I read a book, I read, um, emotional survival (laughs) for law enforcement after I got out of law enforcement and I'm sitting there in bed reading it. My, I'm sitting there yelling at my wife, did I used to do this? And she's like, yeah, you still sometimes (laughs) do. I'm like, okay. (laughs) It's funny how we can ignore those things about ourselves or just kind of rationalize. Um, so that's when I realized that, I, I probably had an issue. I went and got diagnosed. Um, and it's at that point, I had already started kind of the stoicism stuff and uh, just the self-analysis that jujitsu forces upon you by humbling you so badly, getting choked out by 13 year old little boys and stuff. Um, so uh, I actively decided and I, I saw what the stigma was in my own department and kind of what in law enforcement around mental health and getting, you know, asking for help and being a corporal, I decided I'm going to go get help with this. I'm going to find the resources. Uh, Cause I've even heard, I had, uh, uh, I've had people on my podcast that they went and told people what was wrong with them. And they started, the, you know, the counselor started crying or the therapist started crying, but like, yeah. well, that's no help to anybody. So finding a resource that could actually help law enforcement so that I could then pass that on to any of my guys or girls that were having issues um, and take that to, and, and show them, Hey, look, I still have my badge. I still have my gun, you know, all that stigma is yeah. nonsense. We need to get help and then take that to my, my command staff as well. And we actually had an incident where a young girl was attacked by several dogs and just tore her up. And all the, our officers that had responded to that were all showing signs of PTSD that I spoke to. Um, so I was, uh, one of the sergeants brought in a group called 3FTL. It's a local nonprofit started by uh, a fireman's wife. Their friend committed suicide. So she started this group to help first responders get get help. And so I reached out to them. They got me in contact with a therapist who was a crusty old sergeant from the uh, army. He was a EOD, explosive ordnance disposal guy. So right up my alley, you know, we, we spoke the same language. We understood each other. Uh, he introduced me to EMDR, which I can never remember. Eye movement, disassociation, something or other. <laughs> something I can never or other. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but basically yeah. It, it takes everything from the 
you know, from the active memory and moves it back into long, long-term storage where it's supposed to be so that you don't keep reliving it. Yeah. And after two sessions of that, my nightmares were gone. I could hear air, you know, I could hear tornado sirens all day and not freeze up. It was incredible just that, how quickly that helped. And then just being able to talk to somebody that understands that didn't start crying when I, you know, tell them some of the, I, I even told him, I was like, it kind of worries me that some of the stuff I've seen as a cop doesn't bother me more than it does when it seems to be this one incident in the military that caused all my problems. And he's like, you're just able to rationalize it or, you know, mm-hmm. you're able to cope with it's, it better for whatever reason. It, it's interesting on that fact. You know, I've, I've told my story of my partner getting assaulted and it throwing me completely off the rails. Mm-hmm. You know, it changed the trajectory of my policing because I felt like I failed her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I remember saying the same thing, you know, I hit rock bottom after, you know, seven and a half years in law enforcement, nothing major, like it was that it was, yeah. you know, and then it became heightened alertness and, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And, you know, I, I went into, you know, our version of secret service, which made that heightened awareness even, even worse than just as a normal cop, <laughs> uh, because you started looking at everybody as a threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and then, you know, got to the stage where most law enforcement who don't deal with any of this stuff, you know, almost got a divorce. You know, I was lucky I didn't. My wife's very strong and stubborn in a lot of ways, which is good. Um, and she'll slap me around when I need to be. Uh, but <laughs> I remember going the same thing. I can't have PTSD. There's no way. And, you know, I was never officially diagnosed, but my counselor was like, Chris, you're one you're burned out so bad that's why i'm so passionate about burnout because she's like burnout is causing all your stuff she's like yeah you most likely have ptsd of some sort from all the incidents and that that you've been in the police but she's like i'm not qualified to diagnose you with any of that but you most likely do uh and so you know i was like there's no way i can and then i remember sitting down with my cousin who um was uh he's ex-army did two tours one iraq one um afghanistan in Afghanistan, he was a, uh, I don't know exactly his role and he'll probably kick my ass if I, if I say it wrong, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he was an MP or he used to train the, you know, the, the locals on, you know, you know, uh, to you know, the security forces and that for um, checkpoints yeah. and stuff. So he'd be on checkpoints a lot. And I do know that he had a, a suicide bomber come and blow up his checkpoint and some of the guys got killed. He lost a bunch of his hearing disability and that. And I remember going to that he should have PTSD from that, that not me, not from the stuff that I did. And I remember talking, sitting down and talking with him when I did my soul searching motorcycle trip to refine myself and reconnect and fill my battery back up. And he goes, Chris, it doesn't matter. It could be the most minor thing. It's just the way that your mind reacts to it. Yep. And after that, your trauma is your trauma and so you know it's 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 a it's an interesting thing because still law enforcement there's a lot of law enforcement out there that are like oh that's not that that's not trauma yeah any trauma is trauma and that you know when you said the things in law enforcement you're like how do i not get destroyed by that but i get destroyed mm-hmm. by this one incident that had nothing to do with me actually so obviously that incident happened you went through a lot of stuff it was years later. I take it. You got, it, it sounds like you got help. Yeah. That was in 2016. I didn't go through therapy till 2021. Hmm. So yeah. how was life during that time? Um, so the biggest, uh, probably the biggest, uh, symptom that, that I recognized was, um, I call it my gray days. Uh, the VA called it a flattened effect. Um, so where there's just days where I could honestly just not give a shit about anything. The things that usually bring me joy, the things that I'm passionate about, I could give less, you know, I could care less about any of it. And it's just a very emotionless, kind of depressing state. Um, so I had a lot of those and mm. getting into the, you know, I was later in my career, um, like you said, around the seven, eight year mark of the career where the the job doesn't really challenge you anymore you can deal with pretty much anything you see on the street and then it turns more into the internal politics of the the organization and you know focusing on really things that you can't control about it and it, those were just kind of piling up so that's where the burnout came in i didn't really give a you know there wasn't anything to really drive me and on top of having the ptsd and the kind of just that flattened effect um 
it really just kind of made for a very mundane existence at that point. So, yeah, they're, they're not fun. Looking back on those days, they're not that great, are they? No, <laughs> no. And I still have them. Like they're, they're, they they yeah. still come around, but now that I know what they are um, yeah. and I know that they're not going to last. Uh, yeah. So if it's a day where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to cancel what I had planned today. That's just the way it's going to be. Now, if it turns into a week of that, then I'll, you know, make a appointment with my therapist who's who I don't see on a regular basis anymore, but he's there if I need him. So I've gone yeah. back and said, Hey, I just need to chat. And he's, we get, we get on zoom and, and just talk. Um, but since I've identified those and know that it's not long lasting and I have my, you know, my journaling and I have my philosophy that I, that I fall back on, uh, I'm able to get past those without worrying too much about how long it's going to last or, you know, being too despairing too much because I know it's just a temporary state. You don't get stuck in the weeds anymore. You know how to get yourself yeah. out. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go into the tools that you use, but we'll go into that in a second. Before that, mm -hmm. I want to jump back to, you know, early days in the military. Were you prepped or primed or given any kind of tools to be able to process that stuff quickly or be able to actually work on any of this stuff and be like, you know, be able to go hey wait a second we're gonna get mortars thrown at us and there's gonna be nasty shit that happens this is how you can process it did you get taught right. any of that for military Absolutely or for not. law enforcement no no not not whatsoever uh, maybe in law enforcement a little bit more because i i came in in 2014 so we had like a whole mental health section of the academy i don't think anything really prepares you until you start experiencing it um but we knew what we were going into um a few of us had been there before. I had not. That was my first deployment. Um, but no, I, I mean, you go out there and you do the job. And it's very much, especially when I was going through, especially early on, uh, you suck it up and you get through it. And if you complain about it or you need to go see somebody about it, then, you know, you just, uh, you're weak and nobody trusts you anymore. And it just had that same kind of stigma that, that the police uh, profession has had for a long time. Well, don't, you know, I don't want that guy showing up on a call with me because I heard uh, he's having nightmares about stuff. So it's very similar in the military, probably even worse. Yeah. Cause he, you're afraid if you go to, and I had I actually had the angriest man I've ever known. I love him to death. Angriest man I've ever known. Tell me I had an anger problem. And if I didn't go see somebody, they were going to mandate me to do so. So I was like, damn, so. I'm glad you brought up the. I'm glad you brought up the anger thing because I remember when I was like younger, early in my career, I was like, eh, yeah, I've got an anger problem, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Just watch out when it comes out; it'll be fine. <laughs> that was probably the the biggest thing um, that I've ever had to work on because that's how we're taught to lead, especially on the flight line early on, because it's a very dangerous place, and you better do what I say when I say it. Or you might get, you might lose an arm or you might be killed or do something stupid and damage an aircraft or hurt somebody. Um, so it was a lot of yelling and screaming and, you know, knife hands in the face and that kind of stuff. And that carried over to home, you know, that, that had a hand in wrecking my first marriage. And my, unfortunately my youngest or my oldest went through that period with me uh, to where I, and I've gotten to the point where I've examined that about myself. Um, and when I went to teach, I taught for four years in the military and quickly realized that you can't teach people how to work on jets by screaming at them. Um, that's where kind of where I, I found out that there's other ways to lead, that there's things about myself that I needed to change. Um, my first class in teaching tech school, I don't know what any of them are doing because they do not talk to me. I'm not friends with any of them on Facebook. None of them have ever reached out because I was a dick. Um, yeah. In my last class, I know what all of them are doing. You know, they keep me updated on their careers and on their lives. And we talk regularly because I changed that about myself and was able to help them and, you know, provided them some actual mentorship and, and help when they needed it. Um, that was a big turning point for me. And then once I started going through my therapy, realizing that that anger is just a symptom of other, other things. Um, what I learned digging deep into it and figuring out why I was acting that way. Um, I'd go through my day and just kind of make a note when I would lose my cool or something that, you know, blew my temper mm -hmm. up. 
and at the end of the day, just look and see, okay, what about that situation caused that? And it all boiled down to some kind of fear, fear of being disrespected or fear of not being in control. Um, and it was just, I, I call it the missile defense system of the ego. So if my ego was challenged somehow, or I got scared somehow, that anger was how I defended myself and felt stronger and more in control. Um, and I tell kids all the time, especially young men that are, you know, are so in, so controlled by that anger is you have to find that tipping point, what leads up to it, because once you pass it, there's no coming back. It feels too good. It feels too powerful. You feel, you know, you feel right at the time. And then you feel like a complete idiot once that, <laughs> once it yeah. burns off. And um, then that complete idiot side starts to burn you down and starts to drain oh, you out. Does. If you have any empathy whatsoever in any part of your soul, it mm -hmm. starts to drain you down. And the more you do it, the more you do it, it drains you even more and more. Uh, question for you real quick. When you were in the military, yeah. would you say that you were under... I mean, you might, looking back, you might see it, but then you probably didn't, uh, felt like you were under a lot of stress and pressure and a lot of like, oh my God, I can't fail at this. I can't do this wrong. I can't do that wrong. All of those. Yeah. I mean, in a profession where if you put in one screw in the wrong place or leave something out, a pilot could crash and die or, you know, somebody could get killed or hurt. Uh, and just the, it's the pressure of hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, get it done but don't mess up or we're going to screw you over <laughs> and you're guilty until proven innocent. And so, so, um, so, sounds like another career that we know. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. I just transitioned right into another one. Um, but yeah, just constant pressure. You know, we're, we eat our own, you know, we find the weak link and we go after them and uh, try to cut them out of the ranks or um, so yeah, there's constant, watching your, not only watching your back for what you're doing, but watching your back for anybody else that's out to get you or thinks that you're not doing something right and trying to make themselves look better by making you look worse. Um, so yeah, it's, it was constant pressure for sure. How do you feel? How do you feel that that constant pressure added up to that day that, you know, that mortar went off and then you like, you know, obviously it just completely changed your trajectory. Mm -hmm. do you feel that that constant pressure that constant stress and not knowing how to process it not knowing how to deal with it not knowing how to actually be good with yourself do you think it contributed to that happening oh absolutely yeah um uh i equate it to i didn't really really know who i was until about age 39 because up to that point i hadn't actually tried to figure out who I was or even attempt to be, I call it the, you know, the, uh, the main character in my story. So I let a lot of other people, I let, I let the military way of life, the culture, uh, fill in who I was and didn't actually really figure out what my principles or goals or anything were. Uh, a lot of people do it with the police department as well. They let that identity of a cop fill in those blanks so that they don't have to do it themselves. Um, so going through all of that, I didn't really have any way of applying my own principles or, you know, knowing how I should react to something or, um, having those boundaries, uh, when treated a wrong way or anything like that, being able to say, no, that, that goes against what I believe. I'm not going to put up with that, or I'm not going to accept that all of those things just pile up and pile up and pile up. And that's why I had my I, I, I look back and realize I had multiple nervous breakdowns throughout my military career. I just didn't know what they were. Um, just to where that cup overflowed. Uh, my, my therapist has a great way of putting it. He calls it the circuit breaker. You get too many toasters plugged in and you know, that circuit breaker is going to, going to blow. Um, and you don't know when that is. And I think that's a lot with the police as well, or I don't think things bother me and I don't really have any one you know, mortar incident to look to identify that that bothers me, but it's just that constant filling of the bucket, those little things. And then you can catch an odor or hear something or something happen. And that's just that one thing that flips that breaker. Um, and I think without having that solid foundation of self-identity self -identity to where 
I now know who I am. I know what my principles are. I know what my goals are. I know why my goals are what they are. I know when my ego is involved, all of my activities and behaviors, I know where they come from. I can better buffer those events and understand why they affect me, understand why I react the way I do so that I can better respond to situations rather than just be like a, a passive, I don't know how to, what word to say, just a, a passenger in my own life, just letting things yeah. happen to me. If that makes Which, any would, sense, I'm a ramp. It makes, <laughs> no, it makes, it makes total sense. You know, those little incidents, especially law enforcement, military, any of the, what they call the A-type personality roles, you know, mm -hmm. all of us first, all of the first responders and that, you know, we, you're trained and you have to, in a way, not emotionally respond to an incident at the time of the incident where civilians get to you know they see a yeah. dead person they see a cat get ran over whatever it is that kind of happens they can emotionally break down they can you know cry they can have all these things but if a cop does that or military does that it can mean life or death for other people it right. can mean life or death for themselves it also means a lot of judgment from other people because that's just what has you're in this authority role uh, it was interesting, you know, while you were talking, while you're saying what you're um, saying stuff just now, it reminded me, I was talking with my coach the other day. And, you know, I've got a coach that I see most, almost every single week to keep me on track, because I don't want mm -hmm. to have that kind of, the, it keeps me in momentum, uh, both, you know, emotionally, relationship wise, business wise. Uh, and she was talking about, you know, tell me if, if, if I'm wrong here, Bryce, but as a cop and ex and ex military, would you say that you like you're you're in control of your mental like you can men you're mentally one of the strongest people probably on the planet? Uh, I I would honestly say so. Just from yeah, just from the act of constantly having to go through things that most people aren't yeah. going to see because of our relatively safe, you know, society that we live in now. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would say absolutely. What about what about physically? When it comes to physical movement, fitness, would you say that you're pretty good at that? I am because I've actively made a choice to be so and you know, since I've gotten, since I decided to start playing that first person role in my own life, since I decided to be the main character, I know that it's my responsibility to do that, that I feel better about myself and am better able to take those stresses and make those decisions when I am in what I consider the best shape I've been in my entire life. I've got, all my aches and pains, I'm 42. So all those, you know, being an aircraft mechanic for 20 years isn't exactly nice on the body. Jiu-jitsu no. is not nice on a 42-year-old body. Um, Wearing a vest every day isn't nice on a shape, body either. Yeah, I was chasing a, I was in a foot chase with a 20-something-year-old uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was on him. I was just waiting. I was wearing all my gear, and I'm just waiting for him to wear out. <laughs> and then I realized that we had a dog on scene, and I had to get small real fast. Uh, <laughs> yeah those, like, those canines will do that how about how about when it comes to emotional reactions being able to process your emotions quickly um because i've worked on it um mm. my that reaction was anger until yeah. about three years ago when i started actively working on it um i call it naming my demons i know i can better recognize the situations now like I know the name of you, so I can better, you know, I can yeah. control it and keep it from taking over, which is really what stoicism and philosophy is about, um, is controlling those, uh, uh, what do they call them? It's the basically reacting instead of responding. So allowing those emotions yeah. to make my choices for me rather than me. So yeah. I'm actually I've be able to process better at, yeah, I've gotten better at flexing that muscle and building that muscle up to where I can slow down. I can see what's going on i can recognize it so i can kind of step back a little bit and choose which, my response. which of those three mental physical or emotional would you say that you have to constantly work on the most oh uh, for me it's the mental uh because i think that's ultimately what decides all the rest of it so uh, for me it's for me intentionally it's getting enough sleep um which i've neglected my entire life um because i know when i'm tired i have a lot less control over my moods and over my uh decisions and responses my my kids will definitely back me up on that 
I'm a lot, you know, easier to snap and all that if I'm had two hours, three hours of sleep. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, I think it, it, and the same goes for if I'm not in the right mindset, I'm not going to work out. I'm not going to work on my physical. I think all of that ties in, but ultimately for me, it's having the right mindset, being present, being in the moment and being able to, to dictate what it's, I'm going to do. It's, it's funny you say that because I always say the same thing. Mental, mental, mm -hmm. mental, mental, mental controls everything. And then my coach threw it back on me. And I think this will help <laughs> yourself. It'll help law enforcement. It, I'm having to work on it constantly. I, this was like two weeks ago. And she goes to me, she goes, Chris, but without being, being able to actually process your emotions quickly, the mental means nothing. You're using mm -hmm. the mental to be actually do that. She's like, you as a law, you as law enforcement have been trained to stuff your emotions away and maybe come back to them later. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I still do that to this day. <laughs> yeah, something bad or something hard will happen. And the emotion I'll be like, I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll start to deal with it. And I'll be like, distraction. Because my <laughs> mental state, because I'm so in control and I practice so much on my mental state that I can mentally take that emotion, put it into a box and go, I dealt mm -hmm. with it. Yep. And then she told me- she's really able to do that really well too. That's kind of how we deal yeah. with everything. Yeah, right. Us guys, especially that. law enforcement, <laughs> almost every single one of them can. Uh, and it's because we have to, you can't emotionally yeah, ball your eyes to. out when you, when you, when you walk into a scene, when there's, you know, something happened, you've got to disconnect yourself from it. And then she, she made a really simple point. She's like, did you know that it takes about 90 seconds to work through an emotion? I was like, hmm. no, it doesn't. She's like, yeah, if you actually let the emotion process, it takes 90 seconds. If you sit with it and just let it yourself feel the feelings real quick, she's like, it's in and gone in about 90 seconds. That's and interesting because that's, that's kind of how um, I've approached uh, being a dad as well with uh, a teenager. And I've noticed it on the street as well. If somebody is amped up and emotional, if you don't feed it, if you just kind of let it burn out, it's gone in about 90 seconds because it takes a and lot when, of energy to keep that going. And when she told me that, I was like, oh, my God, I'm spending so, I've been I've still spent, you know, I'm learning stuff all the time. I'm mm -hmm. spending so much time trying to use the mental strength that I have that I'm like, I always have to work on. I've got to do the mental strength to be able to do the physical to then be able to. Do, it's like, no, wait a second. If I actually just let the emotional go, the mental becomes easier. The physical becomes easier. Oh, my yep. God. There's less to be mental about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so when I realized that, I was like, oh, my God. Okay, cool. There's things. And she, the other thing she said is she's like, if you never let those emotions actually process. And this is what hit me really with the law enforcement. I was like, oh, my God. There is so much stuff that I never let go. I never actually mm -hmm. processed through. She's like, if you never actually process through those emotions ever, the emotion of the dead body, the emotion of the crash, the emotion of the boss yelling at you the emotion of all those different emotions if you never actually let yourself sit through it it will stay there until you let yourself yep and that's where like emdr lets you process that stuff really quick and throw it back lets you process it really quick and throw it back yeah that's that's been the the journaling process for me which i could never do for years i could not commit to it um and then i started somehow I started just making myself do it every day. However long that was, if it was three words, it was three words, but I made that habit. Um, after reading atomic atomic habits, uh, by James clear, like you don't always want to sit down and write three pages, but if you can sit down and write three words, you're probably going to write more yeah. and just establishing that, you know, that channel in the brain. Um, but I just found that just processing what I went through that day, kind of identifying where I reacted to what and why, it makes it uh, tangible. It like takes it out of the head so I don't have to think about it anymore and puts it on paper, makes it tangible to where I can more easily identify and, you know, dissect it and look at it. And it really does just kind of, uh, it, it's funny. I, I saw a meme the other day of uh, Dumbledore pulling the memories out of his head with his wand. It was a, some cop meme. It's like cops yeah. removing, you know, dead grandma from that day so they can go home and be with their kids. I was like, that's kind of what I was like, yeah, that's like journaling for me. It just kind of yeah. gets it out of there. So I'm not struggling with it so much. It's interesting. Journaling is one of those things that my mom tried to get me to do when I was a kid. 
And I thought journaling was just right about your day. Yeah. And then I recognized, and I'd love to know your take on what you do for journaling. Then I realized journaling is getting the shit bouncing around in your head, out of your head and putting it on paper. At least that's how I use it. And so it does like once my coach was like, she was like, you need to process these emotions. You need to let them flow and actually feel them and actually recognize why they're there. You know, a what is a logical thing? What is a what do I need to do? A why is an emotional response. It's why when you start to ask somebody, why is that important? Why do you want to do that? A lot of times they clam up and they go, I don't know. Because a why becomes an emotional response, not a logical response. And so it's, you know, what do you want to do is a little bit different. You start to think about what do I want to do? Why do you want to do it? You're like, I don't know. I just want to. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, how do you journal? Because I know everybody hears, especially law enforcement, military, you think you hear journaling. You're like, oh, that's like woo woo stuff. And I can't do that. I'll never be able to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Dear diary. Yeah. You you think about the movies and that, you know. I found uh, it was reading one of Ryan Holiday's books too, I think about, and he said something about journaling and mentioned Benjamin Franklin and how he did it. And that's where I started the process was just trying to figure out why I responded to different things. So it was looking back through my day. This happened today. Why did it happen? Why did I respond that way? Why am, why was I thinking this? Why did that crackhead saying that about my mom bother me? Um, Something like that, you know, and it usually doesn't. I usually laugh when they make fun of my mom, but she's actually in the next <laughs> room right now. Too. Um, uh, but after that, after I kind of narrowed those down and figured it out, um, it's really kind of just what's on my mind at that time. A lot of it is ideas for shows now or, you know, people that I want to interview or, you know, uh, books that I'm reading and just kind of boiling it down to, like you were saying, boiling it down to some actions that I can take from it. So it's not just entertainment but it's something that i can actually use and put into action um so it's 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 a lot of um dissecting things that i'm thinking about and like i said some days it's you know this happened and you know this is what i thought about it and it's two lines but it fulfilled that need i had for that day it got it out of my head if there's something that i'm fine that i'm constantly thinking about and constantly wrestling with then I'll definitely sit down, put it on paper, try to figure out what the what the base of it is or what the key problem is and try to work something out. Um, so it's really just it's a it's a self analysis tool anymore for me. So. That's 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 awesome. It's yeah, and it's so important to get those thoughts out of your head. Otherwise, they bounce around and we start to create all sorts of new reasons why they're there and what they could create and all that once they're out of your head Other days i'll sit like, down and i can't think of anything to write and that's what i tell myself okay what am i constantly thinking about lately and just mm-hmm. try to break that down and try to see if there's something underlying that i need to deal with oh, or if so the ego cool. is getting too involved or something like that what is some of the other tools and that that you've learned now that you wish you had in the early days of military mm-hmm. early days of policing what are the key like three maybe five uh things that you're like if i had had this and this is uh, and, and what it is what would those things be um so one of the main things that i wish i've had forever is uh stoics call it dichotomy of control i'm sure steve talked about yeah, it steve talked um, about it yeah yeah it's one of the key just if you get nothing else from stoicism that's that's the one that that helps most people and just focusing on what you actually can control and not letting the rest of the crap bring you down because there's literally nothing you can do about it anyway. Um, so basing uh, goals on things you can control. I want to be a corporal. Well, you don't have a choice whether they hire you as a corporal. I want to be, uh, I want to go through the process and learn about it and do the best I can, you know, and learn, you know, study all these things. So at the end of it, I'm better off whether I make it or not. Those are things I can control. The ultimate outcome of becoming a corporal, not in my control. It's 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 um, funny you say that because what you just did is you literally broke down the process to become corporal. Yeah. Goal, corporal. I don't have control on whether I do that, but what I do have control of is the process to get there. And these are the things yeah. I need to study. I need to learn all about it. I need it. And so you just set yourself step by steps and little goals. Yeah. 
Just and to give viewers had, a little insight there. <laughs> I've told this story a couple times on a couple podcasts. He's going to kill me if he ever hears about it. But uh, a buddy of mine, I was, he was one of my, I, I grew up with him uh, and he was like six months ahead of me out of the academy. And we've grown up in law enforcement together and I became his corporal. And uh, he wanted a dog more than anything. He wanted a canine. And our PD had already gotten rid of theirs. So I told him, I was like, what's it hurt for you to do everything you can to be the guy, the obvious choice if they do get a dog. So he did all of this homework. He learned all the case law. He went out and found a place that would give us a dog basically. And he got food and vet bills and all of it basically paid for. Uh, he made all these contacts with all these other canine officers and got known in the community and all this stuff. And did he get his dog? No. He didn't get his dog. And one day he's like, that was just all a waste of time. I was like, like, how much did you learn? How much better are you now than you were when you started? How many contacts and, you know, all this other stuff do you have? He's like, of course, he didn't want to hear it then because he was upset about yeah. his dog. But, um, <laughs> just that that process, like I set your goal on I can learn all these things. I can better myself this way. And if I get a dog, cool. If I don't, maybe it's time for me to make the decision to go and have the dog make that my choice instead of, you know, putting all my hopes and dreams in something that is not my ultimate decision that I can't bring into, into being. Um, so that one was like a life changer for me. Um, and, uh, let's see what else. Um, a, a big one for me has been, and Steve may have talked about this one too, is the idea of uh, Amor Fati, which is love fate. Um, yeah. So I'm not a religious guy, you know, I don't believe in, in, in that stuff. Um, and I don't believe in like a supernatural fate, um, like the, you know, ancient Romans did or anything like that. But uh, much like the Stoics, they believe that it's just a series of events. Fate's just a series of events that it started whenever the universe started. It's just a, you know, cause and effect. These things cause these things and these things. Um, so whatever happens in life, it's going to happen. I don't necessarily have any choice over it. I might be able to influence something here or there, but ultimately what happens is what happens. And you can either be butthurt about it and cry about it and say, woe is me. Or you can say, oh, shit, well, that happened. So how am I going to best respond to it? Um, which fits right in with, oh, I didn't get corporal. Okay. Well, what can I do? You know, how do fits I get right in with dichotomy of control? It's, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it all fits together. Um, a big thing for me is learning that I'm not in competition with anybody except for me. My whole purpose now is to be better than I was yesterday. And the way I do that is I try to focus every, uh, every goal, every action, every decision off of what uh, Stoicism calls the four cardinal virtues, which is courage, wisdom, self-discipline, or they call I forgot what the, the actual name they call it, but it's self-discipline and justice, um, which when I learned those, I was like, what better four words to describe your ideal police officer than courage, wisdom, self-discipline and justice. And that's what initially was like, man, this has to be applied to law enforcement. Um, but what's great about those is like, you really can't do any of those things without the courage to do them. You know, too much courage is never a good thing because that turns into recklessness. So having the wisdom and self-discipline to rein that in. So they all fit together. They all influence each other. Um, and just about every decision can boil down to, OK, where can I get better at this? So if an event happens, OK, well, maybe I need to know more. Maybe I need to up the wisdom in that area. Uh, maybe I didn't act fast enough. Maybe I didn't act courageously enough in this this situation. Um, and just looking back over especially my military career, how much more I could have gotten out of mm. that career if I hadn't been stuck in the victim mindset a lot of time where, oh, this didn't happen and I deserve this. So now that guy didn't deserve that. Um, yeah. Where instead of that, I could have just been focusing on me and how I could get better. Yeah, um, the growth, have the growth mindset instead of the you know significance. This has to, you know, I, I, I deserve this because I did this. It's more of the right. growth mindset instead of the, yeah. I got passed up for corporal, that guy got it. Instead yeah. of tearing that guy down, 
maybe talk to him and say, Hey man, what'd you do? What, you know, is there something that you how'd you get, how'd you do it? Yeah. <laughs> Learn yeah. from him, Support Learn from him. him. show them, yeah. show them that they made the wrong decision. Yeah. You know, prove them, prove them wrong instead of proving and it's, them right. It, and it can, and it can be a hard thing to do because we're in a culture mm-hmm. that tears people down. You know, it, you, you think about, you think about, I remember, you know, as a cop, you tear criminals down. Mm-hmm. Cops still do. They tear criminals down. And yes, I don't believe that somebody who goes and rapes a little girl should be, you know, I do believe that they should get punishment, but that guy didn't, wasn't born that way as well. Right. And it's also not our role to punish anybody. No, it's our role to put, take them into custody and hand them over to the people that punish them. Yeah. And that goes right into the, I think that's where a lot of cops experience a lot of burnout is putting Mm. so much hope and, you know, uh, put a lot of their feelings into, well, this guy didn't get prosecuted. That's not our decision. We did our job. We put them away. That's, that's about dichotomy of control. Yeah. Make the best case you can (laughs) learn from it, learn how to testify, uh, do everything you can to influence that decision, but it's not our decision. No, so. it's not. You know, I was I ran a master class last night uh, on this, the first steps to eliminating burnout, and it was the one the one of the biggest things that we talked about last night was that whole fact of you know you don't have control over everything. Your job is to arrest somebody, put them in front of the courts, and walk away. Mm-hmm. Give the best evidence, give everything that you can, and walk away. Not don't the decisions after that are. Yeah, don't say anything stupid. Don't do anything stupid. But it is not up to you about the punishment. You are not judge, jury, and, and executioner. You are just the we're person really that puts in the them in front of the judge. Whatsoever. No, we're not in the judgment at all. Our job is to arrest them. And I said, hey, if they get released, guess what? You get to go have more fun and, yeah. you know, probably arrest them again until they learn better. Or maybe just by you arresting them, just by you arresting them, they learn from it. I've had that before. I've had people come up to me, see me on the street afterwards and be like, Chris, thanks so much for locking me up and putting me in front of the courts because it gave me the shock that I needed. Yep. I had, and I, I tell this story and I say, if if I get nothing else out of my law enforcement career, I have this. Um, I arrested a guy for uh, DWI here in Texas. It's driving while intoxicated. Uh, A lot of places is DUI, but same deal. And uh, he told us he'd been doing it every single day for probably two years, just driving mm. blackout drunk and happened to catch him this time, put him in jail for it. He met somebody in the jail that, and it would be very, very religious guy. I have no issues with, you know, however anybody gets help, uh, nothing against religion or anything like that. Um, but the guy was like, God told me to come and talk to you. And through that experience, he uh, got sober his life, his family life was in a wreck. He was able to, you know, get back his, you know, get good with his family. Um, he actually came back like it was a month or two after I arrested him. They just told me, Hey, chief wants to see you. So I walk into chief's office and this guy's standing there. I was like, Oh shit, what's going on? <laughs> what's <And> the complaint? <laughs> yeah. He wanted to tell me, thank you that I had saved his life. Um, and since then he started multiple programs to help people with sobriety. Um, he helped, uh, the my old PD uh, with we have a teen diversion program. So if they get in trouble for drugs or alcohol, uh, they can go through this program and it won't show up on their records and hopefully get them on the right track. He comes and speaks in that uh, and he's remarried. He's having a great relationship with his kids. So like I said, and if I get nothing else, I've helped him. And then however many people that he's helped doing whatever he's done. So and if you think and if you think about it, there's probably dozens of other people out there that mm-hmm. every law enforcement officer has helped in that same exact way. They just don't know about it. You may not ever know about it. Yep. Oh. And so, you know, it's that positive mindset side of stuff. Now, you did mention something around you're going to your third law enforcement, your, your third agency. And I did want to touch yep. on this before we before we wrap up, because I, I'd love to know why, because I do. Obviously, we have our own control. We can only control our own stuff and that. But then there's external environment, circumstances, things going on that we sometimes identify. Hey, wait a second. This isn't a healthy place to be right. or whatever it might be. I'm probably starting to put words, you know, words into your mouth. So before I <laughs> before I do that, uh, Bryce, I'll let you go over. Why has it been three agencies? Okay. Um, so I spent eight years with my first agency. They're the ones that hired me and got me into all of it. Um, I was a corporal there. I got to the point where I couldn't go anywhere else. I was patrol. That's the only place corporals were. 
Um, couldn't move into any other specialty. I was basically locked in patrol. So there wasn't a whole lot of growth. Um, I was, I lived where I worked hmm. and going through my PTSD and my mental health stuff, realized that that was an issue because I was never off duty. Um, hmm. we would go to dinner and I would start driving down side streets and alleyways. I would just start patrolling with my family in the car because my brain didn't know the difference between being on duty and off duty. Cause I'm seeing the same streets. I hadn't, hadn't learned, hadn't learned to turn it off when you left the station. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reaching for a radio in my car. That's not there. <laughs> um, yeah. My wife would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, Oh, I'm patrolling. Sorry. And turn back around. Um, you know, running into people when I got my kids in the car or I have my kids with me and in the local grocery store, I see people that I've arrested. Um, which, on a, on a side note, help me become a person who treats everybody with respect at all times, even if they're going in handcuffs, because I don't know when I'm going to see them again with my kids. Yep. I think that's a lot of that's my personality too, but just treating everybody the right way was a big deal. Um, but I had some issues with uh, our guys were getting treated a certain way that I didn't think was good for them, wasn't good for their mental health. Um, the whole mental, the whole mental health aspect wasn't being received like I thought mm. it would. Um, and a lot of the guys were having issues and didn't know where to turn, but it wasn't, it was kind of taboo to talk about still. Um, and then just some decisions were made that I couldn't influence as a corporal. So I couldn't really, I didn't feel like I could really help my people that much. Um, and I realized that it was having a negative impact. Again, my wife was like, you've been miserable for like two years now. Um, and one of the scariest things I think for a cop, especially a supervisor with eight years on, is to give it all up and start over and go oh. back through training and, you know, go through the hiring process again, which is a total beating. Um, well, I'd started looking around. I had a, a buddy from uh, the academy that had been somewhere for eight years. He loved it. So I decided I'd give it a shot and go over there. Um, I've been here about a year and realized that while it was a nice leap and a challenge to my ego and going, doing something that scared me, I didn't really reach far enough because I went to almost the identical agency. I went to the, it's the same size. It has the same problems, the same issues. Um, I just work a whole lot more than I did where I was before. Um, so not a lot of family time, um, yeah. just working a ton. And on top of that, I took a massive pay cut to go there, went from corporal to officer, um, and just was kind of talking it out. And my wife is like, this hasn't improved. You haven't, you know, we were, it was cool when that first change, cause it was a change. Um, but now if, if anything, you're worse than you were. Um, so, uh, Another really good friend of mine from my original agency, two of them just went over to a larger agency and they love it. They've been one of them just sewed on sergeant. And I, so I actually did some homework, <laughs> uh, <laughs> learned some more things and realized that this fits more with how I want to police. Uh, it fits better with my, my morals and my standards. And it just has, a vast number of opportunities and I'll be back making what I was making as well. So that was a nice bonus. It's not the end all be all. I was happy to take a pay cut if it was somewhere that I was happier. Um, yeah. Cause I've definitely learned that that's the money is not going to ever going to make a policing job easier. No. Um, so basically looking at my situation, realizing that it's best for me to make a change and not feeling obligated to be unhappy just because mm. I came somewhere else. Um, and so now I get to put myself back through training again and start <laughs> at the bottom again. Um, but I'm always trying to find ways to challenge myself and do things that are uncomfortable and challenge my ego. So I found no other better way to do that than to go back through field training and go so through the hiring process again. I love it, Bryce, that you, you know, you recognize that this is something that you need for, you know, for challenge and to make sure that, you know, you're happy in that. You know, I, you know, I obviously I run trainings and try and help departments not lose officers, not, you know, have an officer leave. And because, uh, you know, to run an officer through academy just to graduate academy. So from a civilian to graduate academy, 
as costing officers on average, a hundred to $150,000. So that's a lot of money, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for them to then, you know, a few years later, you know, go off and go to a different agency and they're like, what the hell I just put, you know, how do you think, you know, you've gone through, this is your third agency. How do you, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully fingers crossed for you. Uh, But regardless, you know, you're, you're looking for different agencies. How do you believe these agencies or what shifts could they do to retain somebody like yourself to, you know, make sure that they're not losing these officers five, seven years in when really that's really, they're just getting started in their career, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is listen, if as a chief, as a command staff, actually try to reach out. And uh, the biggest issue I've had is them not really caring what, will keep officers there, not even giving it a thought. How are we going to retain people? It's always, how are we going to hire more people? How are we going to hire new people that we have to pay all this money for and put through the academy and give them experience when you have these guys already who are unhappy, actually figure out what you can do. I mean, you don't have to give them everything they want, but just the fact that you're listening and trying to make life better. I think that's the really that's the ultimate goal of a a chief or a sheriff or anybody that's in charge of these agencies is make sure that you're retaining your experienced good people, Um, giving them the opportunity to grow, to to get better, Um, because that was one of the things that was really hard was the trainings we were wanting to go to. They weren't letting us go to them. the projects that we wanted to do were immediately said no, and were just shut down. The dog was immediately, not immediately shut down. It took months and months and months of them saying maybe before they said no. Um, I think really just acting as a leader and knowing your people, knowing what they need, uh, knowing how they want to police and uh, giving them the trust and that opportunities to do that and get better at it. Uh, I think that's the main things that I've seen missing is just that strong leadership. Yeah. What's the difference between, and you know, it, this, this conversation has been, I remember when I was in law enforcement, we had the same exact thing. You had some leaders that were like, yeah, yeah, yeah but then nothing would happen. And then you had mm-hmm. other officers, leaders that were just like, we can't do that. Um, or they yeah. just say, no, wouldn't tell you why. And then you had some that were, that I found were great because they tell you why they can't do it. They'd actually communicate yeah. the whole thing. What do you feel is the difference between those three types of leaders? Like, obviously, there's departments out there where it looks like we've got really good leaders. And then there's other places where people are just like, I don't trust them. Even if they did start doing stuff, I still wouldn't trust Mm -hmm. them. How do we get through all of that? Oh, the difference really is action, because a lot of them will say the right things and they'll say that they want this and that and uh, that their ultimate goal is our happiness but there's absolutely no action to back that up. And your officers are only going to listen to that lip service for so long before they realize that it's empty. Um, and that's what happened to me. My, my buddies will tell you, I was, I was a company man for a long time because I kept expecting these promises to be fulfilled. And I kept telling them, no, it's coming. It's coming. It's going to happen. And then it didn't happen. And then it starts to feel dishonest at a certain point. And when, like you said, all you really want to know a lot of the times is why, what's the plan? What's the goal? What's the end result? How, why can't the how, how, right? how, 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 are, how are you doing this so that I'm actually yeah. aware not just being told, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah. It's coming. How's it coming? What are you doing? Especially when, yeah. especially when I held rank and I want to be part of that, making it better. And I want to help mm. whatever, how, in a, whatever role I can to, to get us to where we want to be. But when you say this is where we want to be, but there's no plan, there's no actions and everything that we do seems to be going in the opposite direction. And then there's no explanation as to why um, it, it just kills all the trust. There's just yeah. like that five levels of leadership. Uh, John Maxwell, I think it has you just constantly at that bottom level of leadership where I have to do what you say because you're the sergeant or you're the chief. There's no there's no trust. There's no you know, I can't. I can't put my best foot forward if I know it's just going to get stomped on. So, um, so obviously so you've me, gone through and done a, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, say for me, it's the action. I want to see you act upon the words that you're saying. And I've tried to implement that whenever I've had the opportunity to lead. Um, 
my guys, I, I did my best to show that I was there to serve them. They were not there to just follow me blindly. I was there to make sure that they had everything they needed to grow as officers, to do their best job, to be happy, you know, to be fulfilled. So I would park in the back lot so that they could have the closer spots. That's one, one less thing they have to worry about. I'll walk through the rain so that you can get, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, we were allowed to choose our, we had, we work 12s. So we had one day of the week that we only worked an eight hour shift. Typically the sergeant and the corporal would choose that first. So I made the decision to choose dead last so that the newest officer would actually have a choice of, you know, they'd have one more day that they could choose from. Um, and just, just little things like taking the paper call at the 12 hour mark on a Friday for a young guy so that he can go home on time. The, just the impact that has on people is yeah. incredible. And they Makes know they want to stay on the job longer. This. Yeah. The, yeah. how much, uh, how many young of the guys told me, you know, called me on my day off and said, Hey, I really appreciated that. Mm. Um, it just, it just shows how little you really have to invest to really get people behind you and show them that you care. And so, the more that I did that, the more of a vacuum I saw of the people above me that were saying that's that that was the culture, but they weren't acting on it. So obviously you're jump, you're, you're looking at a, a, another agency mm-hmm. and I, you said you did research this time. What so that other officers, because I know there's a ton of officers out there, you know, I hear it all the time interviewing people, talking with people, you know, just sc- scrolling through social media, you hear about it all the time. Mm-hmm. What did you do to research to kind of more obviously, you there's no certainty on it, but to yeah. more educate yourself and make sure that it was the place that lines up with your values, lines up with the the actions that you want, with you know, wanting, you know, getting that communication and and those actions actually being taken place. What'd you do to research that so others can actually re, you know, reenact that? So luckily I had, I've got two guys in this new agency that I've worked with for eight years and they're guys that I would follow into hell. They've proven themselves to me. I've proven myself to them. They know what my values are. And that's why I'm such good friends with them is our values line up very closely. Uh, One of them's prior army. So we have that in common. Um, I know what he's passionate about. And I know what my, my other friend who actually, I was his corporal, um, love you, Cody. One of the hardest people to please I've ever met in my life. (laughs) And every box that I had that I needed is he's checking them off for me, telling me this is the way this is very family oriented, uh, very big on, this is a job, not your life. We want you to work and be happy while you're here but we don't want you to this to be your life. Um, mm-hmm. So they're very, uh, and of course, this is what I'm being told. I haven't experienced it yet um, other than the people I've talked to since I've started the process. Um, but his wife is one of my former officers as well. And she's the same way. Like, yep, this is how it is. They have very high expectations and this department is meeting all of them. Um, so talking to them has been my major thing. He came up, gave me a tour, showed me around. Everybody I've talked to has met those expectations. Um, The hiring process, they're very respectful, which is not always the case. Um, They've got it very streamlined for laterals to make it easy to transition. Um, And I've just been treated with more respect than I have as an applicant, really the other two places I've been. Uh, So, so far, everything's meeting what I've been told. So I'm sure like, I don't, I don't, I fully don't believe that everything is going to be, you know, peaches and rainbows the whole time. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be issues. Um, But as long as uh, the leaders are willing to hear about it, actually care, which I'm being told they do. um, And actually take action on it, then yeah. Awesome. And so it sounds like some place that I want to grow and I want to, you know, probably promote again and, and stuff like that. So. Oh, that's awesome, Bryce. That's, that's that's so that's so good to hear. And I know listeners and that will will really appreciate you know knowing that. So pretty much, you know, find somebody that you trust, somebody that you've got similar values and morals with, 
and, you know, communicate with them, talk to them and ask them about it. Um, okay. So Bryce, if somebody wants to learn more, maybe they want to learn about where this agency is so they can try and, you know, come and jump on a spot, uh, or if they just want to get to know you and, and learn more about stoicism and, and, uh, and how to actually start practicing it with you, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, so I'm on Instagram at the stoic sentinel. Uh, my podcast is on all of the platforms. Um, if it's not get in touch with me and let me know and I'll get it on there. Um, but it's the stoic sentinel. Uh, you can email me at the stoic sentinel at gmail.com. And, uh, one of the things that we're putting out, I work with Sergeant Steve Sweeting, uh, from Florida. We've actually teamed up. Um, we are producing a newsletter, which I'm sure he mentioned. Um, you can, it's called, uh, the Bravo one newsletter where we, Every week, we're applying stoicism to law enforcement, giving tools, all that. Um, I have a link tree in my profile on Instagram that you can sign up for that if you like. But love to hear from anybody that wants to email or ask questions or have any advice for the show or, you know, guests they want to hear or topics they want to hear. I'm all about it. Awesome, Bryce. No, I love that. Uh, last question I always ask before I let you kind of, you know, give your last words is, uh, what would you say your top tip to self-happiness is? Self-happiness. Um, so one of the things I've learned is that happiness itself is not a permanent state. Um, for me, it's a byproduct of a fulfilling life. It comes and it goes, but if you're doing something that you believe in, you're going to have it more often than not. Um, what worked for me is, like you said earlier, I found my why. Um, that thing that gave me purpose and also serves others. Um, I believe we're hardwired uh, to serve each other. That's where a lot of our, you know, chemical reinforcement as biological creatures comes from. Uh, we're we're a pack animal, so helping each other out, I think a lot of time leads to that fulfillment. Um, it's important to fill your cup first, work on you, make sure you're in the best mental, physical, spiritual place you can be. Um, that allows us to more effectively help others, which I think in turn, uh, fulfills us. Um, focus on what you can control again, and only set your happiness on things that you can bring about. That's that's been a big key for me. But figuring out who you really are, because a lot of people don't do that. Be the be the lead character in your life, and intentionally go after the things that are gonna serve you. You know, serve your purpose. I think I that's a, ultimately that that'll love. lead to a lot of happy days. A lot of happy days, a lot of happy days. And that's, that's, that's what we want. Uh, any last words, Bryce, before we wrap up? Uh, I don't think so. I think I'm good. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for, you know, being out there, you know, protecting and serving and, and, uh, you know, stay, make sure you stay safe and to all the first responders, law enforcement out there, stay safe. We care about you. Uh, and my motto is always train hard, test easy, because we're always going to get tested, especially as law enforcement first responders. You're always going to be physically or mentally attested. So you may as well train hard for it. Sometimes that's taking a rest as well. Uh, so this is Fight the Burnout, where we interview uh, law enforcement, uh, military first responders uh, and get you the tips and tricks uh, that they've learned over their law enforcement career uh, going through burnout, not going through burnout. Uh, so that you can prevent it and overcome it. Uh, make sure that you have a long-lasting career and love it like day one. If you want to learn more from me, what I do, uh, just reach out to me at createfromy at gmail.com. That's createfromwhy at gmail.com. Or go to our website, createfromy.com. That's createfromwhy.com. Uh, and uh, we can, we'll, we'll either put you in touch with somebody, we'll help you out ourselves. Uh, and if you have a department that wants to learn how to eliminate burnout, um, please do uh, visit the website and get in touch. Without further ado, thank you very much, Bryce, again, and we will talk to you all very soon.